You know, an American-style breakfast can put a lot on your plate. To us, it really is the most important meal of the day, not necessarily nutritionally, but because it's at breakfast where you really can feel where you are, take the pulse of a community. From country biscuits to sweet tamales, road food devotee Michael Stern celebrates what breakfast means across America. Ready for a road trip? Rick Garvin suggests you get to the south rim of Grand Canyon a little before sunset. For about an hour, you watch the changing colors of the Grand Canyon. And author Elizabeth Pisani explains why she thinks of Indonesia as a complicated and fascinating friend. It's not only that there are people living in different centuries in the same country. You're often living in different centuries in the same village. Have breakfast across America, roam the desert southwest, and get to know Indonesia just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. It's one of the most populous countries on Earth. But what do you really know about Indonesia? Elizabeth Pisani has grown quite fond of the country, warts and all, from her years of getting acquainted with the Indonesian people and the issues they face. She introduces us to Indonesia a little later in the hour. One of the favorite regions for taking an American road trip is the desert southwest. It's no surprise that you'll meet so many German RVers at nearly every trading post all along the way. The romantic, wild, and lonely desert scenery featured in hundreds of westerns is indeed what looms beyond your windshield. We'll get inspired to explore the American Southwest in just a bit. We're at 877-333-7425, and by email, it's radio at ricksteves.com. To get your road-tripping days started in style, you need to know how to find the best breakfast in town. Michael Stern of Road Food joins us on Travel with Rick Steves with his favorite breakfast tips for road trippers across the USA. Michael and Jane Stern comb the lower 48, sampling the tastiest comfort food and local specialties to recommend in their road food guidebooks. Michael, good to have you back. It's a pleasure, Rick. How are you? Great. And I just love that your road food guidebooks cover breakfast because for me, when I'm on the road, it's all about breakfast. When you're taking a road trip, what does breakfast mean to you? Well, I agree with you. To us, it really is the most important meal of the day, not necessarily nutritionally, but because it's at breakfast where you really can feel where you are, take the pulse of a community, if you will. You know, dinner's fine, lunch is fine, but at breakfast, if you find the right place, breakfast restaurants are the type of places where townsfolk congregate, where truckers on their way to somewhere begin the day. It's a wonderful place, not only for eating well, but also for conversation. Uh, it's a very convivial meal in most places. You know, I took a road trip on a lecture tour that went literally from Seattle to Tallahassee, crisscross the longest way across the country. And as a standard operating procedure, every morning we would leave the bigger town and we would drive an hour and turn off the highway in a smaller town where we wouldn't really want to spend the night, but where you'd probably have more character. And I thought that was the greatest trick, is just to get an hour of driving under your belt and then have breakfast in a place that doesn't have a lot of glitz and tourism, but as you mentioned, where the town folk congregate. What would you look for to choose a place where you're going to have the most ambience that way? The obvious thing, if you're traveling by car, is to look for a place where the vehicles around it have local license plates. Mm. And in certain parts of the country, you want to look for a place with a lot of pickup trucks around it. The other thing that I think is wise to look for is to have some sense even before you're going of what the local specialties are because of all the different meals of the day, breakfast in some ways is the most distinctive, you know, region to region. Yeah, uh, you know, so in, let's talk about that for a minute. What would be the uh, marquee differences from region to region that you'd look for on a road trip uh, when it comes to breakfast? For example, in the South, you're going to look for good old country ham and biscuits that are just angelically fluffy. In New England, crusty-topped muffins are a real passion. And donuts, too. I don't mean franchise chain donuts, but little donut shops that make wonderful donuts. In the heartland, throughout Illinois, Iowa, Minnesota, you're going to find restaurants that specialize in big kind of kitchen sink scrambles. And huge cinnamon rolls are a big deal throughout Iowa. Kitchen uh, in sink New scrambles. Because I remember okay. re reading in your book uh, about the horseshoe, and that's apparently just in Springfield, Illinois. That's unique to Springfield, Illinois, and it's not quite a scramble. It's supposed originally the horseshoe was supposed to look like an anvil and a horseshoe and some shoeing nails, but in fact, <laughs> what it's become is a great gigantic pile of food. 
Um, on, a, on a with, piece of bread, right? It's like an open piece uh, Well, sandwich. there are a couple of pieces of toast at the very bottom. You don't see them because right. they're covered with French fries, eggs, sausage, cheese, gravy, and many other things. So that's an example of something you didn't know about when you're going through Illinois. Exactly. I interrupted your tour around the country. Then where else were you heading for regional Oh, Well, I was thinking of, of the Southwest. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, there you have tremendous influence of Mexico. And, and there you're going to find a dish on many menus throughout the Southwest called migas, M-I-G-A-S. And what that is, it's kind of a scrambled egg dish, but into which they throw little bits of tortilla. Huh. And what's great is that as it cooks, some of the pieces of tortilla get nice and soft and tender and just kind of just mm. like a, a vein of corn flavor. Other pieces stay or get really crisp on the griddle. So the texture of migas is really oh, wonderful. Michael, and Michael, can, I feel almost dirty talking to you. This is just like, <laughs> ooh, it's so nice. Uh, it, it is. <laughs> and migas is great. I just have to mention there's a place in Oklahoma City called the Classen Grill where they make out-of-this-world migas. And you, you can have sausage in it and eggs and whatever else you want. Michael Stern of Road Food is our breakfast companion right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Jane and Michael Stern have been updating their road food guide to what's now 900 of the tastiest diners and comfort food joints since the 1970s. They've also written The Lexicon of Real American Food and 500 Things to Eat Before It's Too Late. And their roadfood.com website includes reader reviews and road trip itineraries. Diana in Santa Fe joins us now at 877-333-7425. Diane, I hear Santa Fe is a real mecca for eating well in the Southwest. Yeah, I live up the street from Tia Sofia's in Santa Fe. Mm. And uh, that restaurant is supposed to be the place where the breakfast burrito was invented. It's a great combination. Uh, There are lots of things that could go into it, but the best ones, I think, are fried potatoes, eggs, and bacon. Sometimes they throw in some avocados, sometimes some chilies and wrap it all up in a whole wheat tortilla or a wheat tortilla. It's a really great breakfast, and uh, for 5 bucks, it's one of the best bargains in Santa Fe. Sounds good. It's really yummy. Diane, Michael writes about Cafe Pascal's in Santa Fe. Do you know that place? I do. It's fantastic. What yeah, is it? What makes great. it fantastic, Diane? Well, one of the things I really like about the place uh, is not the food. It's the communal table right in the middle of the restaurant. Yes. And you go in and sit down, and uh, you can be sitting beside people from six or seven different states, and everybody's curious about the New Mexico food, and you wind up talking about food and having a great conversation. And, of course, Migas, which uh, he was just discussing or served there, the breakfast tortilla, huevos rancheros, and, of course, here in New Mexico, we top everything with chili, and we can do it <laughs> Christmas style, which means red and green chili together. Mm. And interestingly, the green chili in New Mexico is actually hotter than the red. Huh. Michael, in the book yes. you mentioned banana-wrapped tamales dolce. Ah, yes, because most people think of tamales as a savory dish, but yeah. you know, they're kind of sweet. They'd be good for any meal of the day, but they're yeah. certainly good for breakfast. Diane, I think every time I, we get callers from Santa Fe, just there's so much going on in Santa Fe to experience and enjoy from an edible point of view and a cultural point of view. Oh, yeah. We are a terrific gourmet uh, mm-hmm. eating uh, location. And I, I'd say for a town of 65, 70,000 people, we probably have the best restaurant scene in America. I agree. Okay, Diane, thanks for your call. Thank you. You can email us anytime at radio at ricksteves.com. And Ross has emailed us from Nelsonville, Ohio. And Ross writes, I highly recommend the breakfast at Casanueva in Athens, Ohio. Everything they make is sourced within 30 miles of the restaurant. They also have vegetarian and vegan options. Their seasonal breakfast burrito with barbecue salsa is the best regional breakfast ever. Boy, that's quite a claim, Michael. The best regional breakfast ever. The season <laughs> seasonal breakfast burrito with barbecue salsa. That sounds great. I don't know. I've never had it. I don't know that particular place, but yeah. um, that's quite a claim. The best regional breakfast ever. <laughs> Carry on with that thought. What would you re- when you think we've talked with, oh. about Santa Fe? We've talked about. The horseshoe. What's what? You know, when you go to California, you get it's a little more trendy and healthy. It seems like. Well, it it can be one of the unique specialties that you find in California and up the coast to Oregon and Washington is something called the New Joe Special or the Joe Special, which is a unique kind of omelet. It apparently dates back to the 1920s. It's not really an omelet; it's a, another egg scramble, but it always includes beef and spinach and maybe some cheese as well. But it's a wonderful huh. sort of breakfast scramble that is also one of those great breakfasts that you can have if you need a 
good hearty meal at midnight. I just had that this morning, believe it or not, Joe's Special. I split it because it's more than enough for me, right. and it is a great... I like it better than an omelet, and you yes. can get the Joe's Special our way, which has a spicy Italian sausage, which I like too. Yeah, actually the place I was thinking of is a diner up in Spokane, Washington mm-hmm. called Frank's, hmm. where they specialize in a... They have a wonderful Joe's Special, and on the side, one of those absolutely fundamental breakfast dishes, which is really good hash brown potatoes. Oh, yeah. Looking through your book, one of the most enticing photographs was the photograph of triple berry toast on the uh, Oregon coast. Describe that yes. for us. Oregon is a place where in season, which is you know kind of late summer, throughout the summer, but late summer in particular, the berries are just fresh, plump, bursting with flavor. Triple berry toast is homemade toast. It was at a place called the Green Salmon in Yahats, Oregon, right, right on the coast. Nice town, by it's the way, too. Beautiful town. A couple of pieces of you know of multi-grain toast topped with mascarpone cheese, mm. blueberries, raspberries, and strawberries, a drizzle of honey and a dash of powdered sugar. And the combination of those mm. of the cheese and the plump fresh berries and the toast, it's divine. It's mm. absolutely divine. Michael, Michael, this is so fun talking with you. This is uh, Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Michael Stern. Michael and Jane Stern write Road Food USA and guidebooks about eating while on the road. Michael, let's just wrap up this breakfast conversation with a a couple of words from you on pancakes, waffles, French toast, and syrup. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Well, you know, I'm from the Midwest, so as much as I really love pure maple syrup, because I now live in New England and I'm a great advocate of pure maple syrup— I'm not one of those purists who demands pure maple syrup. I think when I'm in the Midwest, I actually enjoy good old corn syrup on my pancakes. Mm. I know I'm going to be like run out of town <laughs> on a rail for saying that. Uh, but I think syrup, one of the most important things about syrup, aside from whether it's maple, pure maple or not, is that it be served warm. Oh, and yeah. I, I think a restaurant that bothers to warm up its syrup automatically gets high marks in my book because that makes all the difference in the world. So what easy I, to do, and it really does exactly. bump it up. One of the great places to eat pancakes is in Los Angeles, in the farmer's market. It's called Dupar's. It's been there for decades. And what's great is the pancakes are fresh, fluffy, you know, from scratch pancakes. A tall stack is maybe five of them, you know, and that's a good six inches high. But what's great is you not only get a pitcher of warm syrup on the side, you also get a pitcher of warm, melted butter. Mm. You pour them both over the stack of pancakes, and you're in heaven. Mm. Michael Stern taking us to heaven via all the good little joints to have breakfast, lunch, or dinner as you're road tripping around the United States. Michael, it's always great to talk with you, and uh, we'll talk with you again soon. Thanks. Bye-bye, Rick. Now that we've enjoyed our fill of breakfast, how about planning a road trip around the desert southwest? Up next, tour guide Rick Garman shares his favorite stops from the Four Corners to Grand Canyon and beyond. And we take your calls at 877-333-RICK. Later in the hour, we'll find out why Elizabeth Pisani calls her relationship with the country of Indonesia like having a bad boyfriend that you return to over and over again. Stick around to find out what that's all about. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Support for Travel with Rick Steves comes from Rosetta Stone, helping you learn a new language on your smartphone. Rosetta Stone uses images and games to teach instead of rote memorization. Learn more at rosettastone.com slash ricksteves. It's long been an American tradition to motor far from home and explore different regions of our country. Tour guide Rick Garman lives in Hilton Head, South Carolina, and he enjoys taking a road trip now and then to explore the far reaches of the USA. 
He's recently back from exploring the desert southwest and recommends seeing the sites within easy reach of the Four Corners. Rick, what is the Four Corners and, and what makes it such a good destination for you? Well, the Four Corners is uh, where four states come together, Colorado, Utah, New Mexico, and Arizona. And that region is really the heart of the southwest. If you think of the uh, the Grand Canyon, uh, you know, Mesa Verde, Navajo Nation, it's iconic western sites, and it's really a great place to go to get your southwest fix. Let's talk a bit about the national parks in the area. Which ones are there, and, and which ones should we really be sure to visit? The two, in, in my mind, that are the, the best to visit there are Grand Canyon, which gets 5 million visitors a year, so I'm not alone in thinking it's a great place to go. And Mesa Verde uh, never disappoints. I've been there a number of times, and it's the best collection of cliff dwellings that you're going to find in in national parks. And it's a little off the beaten track, so it's not as crowded as many other parks. So Mesa Verde, let's talk about it from a natural wonder point of view, and then the cliff dwellings. Uh, Mesa Verde actually doesn't look like much when you're down in the valley. It's literally a mesa. It's about, you know, 1,000, 1,500 feet above you. A mesa being a a plateau. A a plateau, a flat-topped plateau. Obviously green when the Spanish named it years ago. You enter the, the park down in the valley, and you drive 17 miles up this road to get to the, the plateau up on the top of the Mesa Verde. And up there, where they have all the, the park grounds and everything, you, uh, you then can do a rim tour where you can look down to the cliff dwellings. And more importantly, you can reserve tours to go with a ranger and do a guided walk through some of the dwellings. For instance, the palace, uh, Cliff Palace, has 150 rooms. It's quite striking. It really is. And And how far back does that go? What would you see and learn from your guided um, tour? They think that uh, they were abandoned around 12 or 1300 A.D. Mm -hmm. So they were in use for hundreds of years before that. And uh, they were very self-sufficient. They would farm on top of the mesa, but would live down in the cliff dwellings where it was much safer You could pull up the ladders. Very fascinating. And Mesa Verde seems to have the best collection of preserved cliff dwellings. There are many other cliff dwellings in the southwest, but Mesa Verde seems to have the the best collection. Now, Rick, when you you mentioned the best preserved cliff dwelling, that would be like a thousand years old, what's an example of how well preserved it was? Where, Where did you go into a room and think, oh my goodness, this is remarkable? Well, in many cases, they're built with an overhang. So they were protected naturally from the rainwater and and a lot of the erosion. When you go to one of the dwellings, what you see is rooms that are partially still constructed. Some rooms, kivas, for instance, uh, ceremonial rooms that may still be intact. In some of the tours, you get to climb up wooden ladders to go into some of the rooms. Uh, And where did they go? That's always the question. Where did they go? They think that basically a lot of the uh, descendants are some of the Native Americans that still live in the area. Okay. Uh, not the Navajos that moved in later, but some of the other This Native is before tribes. the Navajos came. Yeah. You also mentioned Grand Canyon, and we all know Grand Canyon. There's different ways to do it. It's one of the great river rafting experiences in this hemisphere, and uh, most people visit it as part of a road trip. Road tripping up and around the Grand Canyon, what are your tips? How can we enjoy it? Grand Canyon gets 5 million visitors a year, so you're going to be with a lot of other people there, and you need to be smart about how you go to the Grand Canyon. There are two major places in the Grand Canyon, one the North Rim and the South Rim. The South Rim gets 90% of the, the people visiting for good reason. That's where all the infrastructure is. That's where you have a lot of the hotels on the national park sites. You have uh, shuttle buses and so forth. And it's really where you get some of the best views. If you want a more pastoral, you know, quiet look of Grand Canyon, go to the North Rim. The funny thing is they're only about 10 to 15 miles apart. You can actually mm-hmm. see the lights at night of the other one. But it's about 220 miles by car to get from one to the other. So really you choose one you or the other. You go to one or the other. Right. Now, this is a big choice. You say, a big choice. You say 90% of the people go to the South Rim because of the infrastructure. If you don't need infrastructure, you just want natural wonder Can you make the case that you'll enjoy the same natural wonder on the north side, or is all the infrastructure on the south side because that's the best side to visit? I would say the latter. The north side has great views and everything, but it has very few places to stay. So you're basically coming in and staying in one of the few cabins, or you're driving a long Mm -hmm. time back to stay someplace else. You're on the south rim with 90% of the 5 million people. How do we enjoy it without feeling like we're just waiting in line to stand on a little platform to take a picture of a great view? The best thing is to stay overnight in one of the the lodges or hotels near the rim. By doing that, you can do one of the favorite things that people do, which is to go up and watch the sunset. Mm. You know, you don't have to worry about getting back to your hotel. It's a Mm five-minute walk. And people gather on just all sorts of spots uh, along the rim, pick their own boulder, and watch the sunset. And really, for about an hour, you watch the changing colors of the Grand Canyon. 
a natural symphony of color as it the is. sun goes down. It's a down. great way to describe it. Even though there are a lot of people in the South Rim, especially in peak seasons, they have shuttle buses to drive you to certain points. There's a lot of walks. You can do, as you're leaving the Grand Canyon, you can do the rim road and, and stop at various places. So it's actually easy enough to get away from the crowd. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Rick Garman about his recent experience uh, road tripping through the American Southwest, specifically the Four Corners region. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. Marty's calling from Atlanta. Marty, thanks for your call. Oh, you're welcome. Hi, Rick. Hi, Rick. Thank you for taking my call. Two Ricks here, helping you out on the Four Corners. That's right. Um, I love this area of the country, and I wanted to share with you a place that I visited that was bordering for me on a religious experience. It's in Coyote Buttes. It's called The Wave. Tell us about it. Oh, it is. It's really wilderness. The Bureau of Land Management issues permits to hike into this area, Hmm. and it's sandstone that has been blown over the years to look like ribbon candy, Mm. for want of a better word. And if you go on the Internet and just go to The Wave, you'll see photos of this. It's, you know, Rick, you were talking about the sun going down at the Grand Canyon. It's the same sort of feel. The light changes the color of these rocks, and Mm. you see pink, you see red, you see vanilla. And I understand why the Bureau of Land Management limits the permits, because this is very fragile. Marty, to let our listeners know better, this is near Coyote Buttes on the Arizona-Utah border, and and you have to earn this while anybody can essentially drive up to what Rick was talking about for great views of the Grand Canyon. You had to actually hike into the wave. Tell us about the hike. It was about three hours. It was hotter than Hades, and I've never been in such a peaceful place. Mm. I couldn't hear any motor noise, no planes, uh, no engines. We were there for probably about three hours and just sort of sat there and marveled at Mother Nature and these different formations. There are formations that look like beehives. Those are nice, but it's the wave itself that calls Mm -hmm. to you. I mean, you see these photos, and and they don't look real. You know, God or the the nature has just carved Mm. out these formations that look like ribbon candy that, you know, that you see at Christmas. They're folded over onto each other. And the other thing I love about this area of the country is the night sky. If I go out there again, I'm going to be sure it's a time when there is no moon Mm -hmm. because I had the experience of being on the Navajo Nation. I was just driving from one place to another, and we pulled over. I mean, there's nothing out there. It's so desolate. It's like the far side of the moon. But we turned off the car and the lights and stood there, and it was like being in a planetarium. I've never experienced that before. The sky was this dome and we could see stars from one horizon all the way up and across to the other horizon. You know, Marty, it's interesting. A lot of people go through their lives and they never have that experience of looking up at the sky and it's just a dome sparkling with bright stars like a, like a planetarium. Rick, any thoughts on what Marty Yeah, Marty has about? some great ideas there. Uh, one thing that you should keep in mind uh, when Marty mentioned it's BLM land, uh, there's a lot more than national parks out in the, the southwest. Uh, BLM land? Bureau of Land Management. Okay. As well as the Forest Service and a lot of other U.S. public property that uh, in many cases you need a, a permit. In many cases it's also much more adventuresome and off-road. But if you're that kind of person, there's a lot more land than the national parks. And the national parks have a lot more land than just where, like, the south rim of the Grand Canyon is. And I love the idea of the night sky. One of the things as an Easterner or as a West Coast person you really notice is that the sky is absolutely clear and you can see. And one of the fun things to do at a national park is quite often the rangers will have a night lecture and often it's about the night sky and stargazing and so forth. Mm. So it's a, and even if you're not as adventuresome as Marty, you can enjoy uh, the night sky. Marty, thanks for your call. That is so uh, intriguing and inspirational, really. My pleasure. Thank you, Rick. Bye-bye, Rick. Bye now. You can email us at radio at ricksteves.com. Brenda from South Jordan in Utah emails us, and she writes, One of my favorite scenic trips is along Highway 12 in Utah, taking you to Bryce Canyon National Park, Kodachrome State Park, hiking Slot Canyon near Escalante, 
all totally spectacular scenery throughout the Grand Staircase National Monument. Rick, did you have any experience on Highway 12 in Utah? Yeah, Highway 12 is a great scenic highway. Not quite the southwest uh, Four Corners area, but uh, I've traveled there, and uh, Brenda's correct. I especially think that Bryce Canyon is an otherworldly experience. Mm. It's not really a canyon. It's a whole bunch of hoodoos, spires coming up from the ground. And I think it's one of the most spectacular national parks anyone could ever visit, quite honestly. Now, you can stop and just view it from a, a car park or actually walk through it. Can you get a better feeling by actually taking some time and hiking? One of the great things about national parks is they do try to appeal to every kind of activity level. In many cases, there will be a, a rim kind of road that you can drive, park your car, and look out be a little more adventuresome and walk down into a canyon for a mile or two, or be very adventuresome and hike all day. Actually, the the heyday of the national parks was when cars were hitting the road and people were making road trips. It was a new thing. Get out in your Chevrolet, see the USA, and all the national parks were accommodating cars. Absolutely. Our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves is tour guide Rick Garman. He's sharing highlights from his recent road trip around the desert southwest of the USA. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. Billy's calling from Yucaipa in California. Billy, thanks for your call. Yeah, I, was, I wanted to share with you about the Ghost Ranch, which is a big conference and retreat center, but mainly because just people can go in there for the day trips. Um, it's beautiful, surrounded by red and gold rock formations. It's the area that's called O'Keefe Country. She actually had a house on the ranch, but also her main, her main house was in Abiquiu, which is 15 miles the ranch. And Ghost Ranch itself is about an hour and a half north of Santa Fe. It's a great place even just to go for day trips. There's a beautiful lake. You can do horseback riding. You can do hiking. It's on the Continental Divide hiking trail. Now, Billy, why Um, is this called uh, Georgia O'Keeffe Country? Because she fell in love. She came out to visit and she just absolutely had this epiphany about this is where I need to live. And she was married to an art person in New York. But from that day on, pretty much, she just stayed there, and she actually had a small house on the ranch. She was a very reclusive person. She did a great deal. Probably every really famous painting that she's done was done right there in that area. There's a mountain called Paternal that you can see from everywhere in the area, and she said, God gave me a message that if I painted Paternal often enough, he'd give it to me. (laughs) Billy, you mentioned it's a retreat and a, a conference center, but you're talking about just the, the natural beauty. Is your proposal that people drop in on the Ghost Ranch, even if they're not involved in an event there, and enjoy just a chance to see the beautiful surroundings? Absolutely. They have a whole program for people that just want to come, and okay. there's about three um, moderate to hard hikes that you can take nice. off from there. One of the great things about Santa Fe, one of my favorite towns in, in the Southwest, is the uh, Georgia O'Keeffe uh, Museum. Uh, with a lot of her her work there. And you can really get your fill of Georgia O'Keeffe. It's wonderful art, very unique. This is high country where there's a sort of thinness in the air and a specialness to the light that must contribute to it. Right. They call it one of the thin places on Earth. There is a real special quality to the air and the light and the sunset. And you can actually take Georgia O'Keeffe tours out of Ghost Ranch, either by van or on horseback. And they'll show you all the places exactly where she painted these paintings and hold up the paintings so you're looking at the scenery and you're looking at the paintings that she did right there. All right. Um, Thanks so much, Billy. And uh, we'll talk to you after your next travels. Thank you. A little bit more about Santa Fe. Great Santa. Obviously, it's the capital of, of New Mexico. And it goes back to when it was the Spanish colonial capital. And it has a lot of adobe and Pueblo-type buildings. The governor's palace and the downtown is very historic. And they want to keep that kind of feel for all of Santa Fe, so everybody has to build in the Pueblo or Adobe style. So even, you know, Best Western hotels and so forth look like they're Adobe. In fact, they jokingly refer to them all as Fodobe. Fodobe, all right. yes. Rick, when you're in Santa Fe, you're you're surrounded by Native American culture. You've got Pueblo Indians and Navajo culture. How can we uh, incorporate a little bit of that into our sightseeing? What are some highlights? Well, my favorite is the, the Navajo Nation, which covers quite a bit of Arizona and northern New Mexico and little bits of uh, Utah. The great thing to do is to get out into some of the areas where the Navajos actually live. And uh, one of my favorite ways to do this is to go to the Canyon de Chez, which is in Arizona. It's a national monument, but it's on the Navajo Nation. And it also has cliff dwellings, but it's part and parcel of the Navajo Nation. I mean, there's Shinley, which is a town, a city of Navajo Nation is right there. The whole place is owned by the Navajos. And uh, one of the greatest experiences I had was actually going to a laundromat in Shinley, and it was just surrounded by Navajos. 
and talking to them and just finding out how they lived and so forth because it's part of the, the real life. It's like a, anywhere, you can connect with the locals, and in this case, you've got Native American and locals. When, and when you go visit Canyon de Chez, you have to take a Jeep tour with a Navajo guide. So we use that as a, a chance to not just take the, the standard, you know, what's the cliff dwelling about, but we asked him, what, how do you live? What's going on? He was in training to be a shaman, so he told us about some of... Uh, you know, the culture of the Navajo Nation. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about Four Corners and uh, the southwest of the United States. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Mary's calling in from Arizona. Mary, thanks for your call. You're welcome. Do you have some comments or addition to our conversation here? Well, uh, I would throw in about the Grand Canyon, the South Rim. There's a trail to Shoshone Point that you can hike. It's east of the main road that goes into the canyons east of Mather Point, and you can walk out there, and sometimes you won't see another soul, and you can get right on the rim of the canyon. No fences, no nothing, and you're looking right down in, and you can be alone. So So your tip, uh, go to Shoshone Point, and you'll be all alone with the wonder of the Grand Canyon. Even on the south rim. Sounds like a great experience. Mary, thanks so much for your tip. You're very welcome. Okay, bye now. Thank you. Bye-bye. There are many other parks that are Navajo Nation parks. One of the most famous is in Monument Valley. If you think of John Wayne movies and other Hollywood movies, they're all filmed. Hmm. You know, the iconic uh, West is basically is Monument Valley, and it's a, it's a park that the Navajos run. And back to Four Corners itself, the Four Corners, the little park that's there where you can go you know, stride over four states at once, is a Navajo Nation park. And the sort of kickoff for this conversation was the Four Corners region. Talk a minute about that. It seems kind of silly, but it is kind of exciting to have the little square meter where four states come together. Yeah, there's a plaque on the ground where it says, you know, the four states, and it's a photo op. Everybody gets their chance to walk out there, and somebody takes their picture, you know, where their legs are on one state or the other. It's In some ways, it's touristy, but it's the only place in the United States you can do that with four states. You could stand on that point and turn slowly 360 degrees, and if you knew all of the natural wonders that were within just a few hours by car... It'd be quite an impressive uh, springboard for a great vacation. Yes. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been joined by Rick Garman, who loves to join us after one of his epic road trips and share what he learns about the United States of America. Rick, thanks so much for your insight into the Southwest, specifically the Four Corners region. Great being here, Rick. You know, there's a great corner in our website designed so you can share your own trip suggestions. It's our listener forum. You'll find it in the radio section at ricksteves.com. Elizabeth Pisani has done a lot of exploring, both as a journalist and as an epidemiologist. She's been island hopping all around Indonesia. A recent sabbatical took her into some truly exotic locales, and she's logged more than 13,000 miles of high seas and small plane adventures. She shakes out what Indonesia taught her next on Travel with Rick Steves. A lot of people travel with walls up. Bringing those walls down is what allows you to have those moments where you truly connect with new people and cultures. Rosetta Stone can help take down one of the biggest walls, the language barrier. Rosetta Stone is fun to use, you learn fast, and you can use it on your smartphone, tablet, or computer. For a special discount, go to rosettastone.com slash ricksteves. It's one of the largest of the so-called emerging countries on this planet, yet Indonesia is probably one of the least understood. Indonesia's population is projected to surpass that of the United States in the next couple decades. It's the world's largest archipelago with some 300 ethnic groups speaking more than 700 languages spread out over more than 13,000 islands. The resort scene in Bali is just a small slice of this country that straddles the equator. This country has a larger Muslim population than any other country in the world. And yet, what do most people know about Indonesia? Elizabeth Pisani thinks of Indonesia as sort of a complicated friend, one she first got to know as a correspondent back in the 1980s and later as a researcher on the effects of the AIDS epidemic there. She returned a few years ago to get reacquainted and ended up spending more than a year as one adventure led to the next. Elizabeth Pisani takes us along on her wild ride in her book, Indonesia, Etc., Exploring the Improbable Nation. So, Elizabeth, why do you call Indonesia an improbable nation? Because it really is the most extraordinary, 
diversity, probably more diverse than any other nation. So as you said, you've got geographical diversity, you've got religious diversity, you've got huge racial diversity in the far west, in Aceh, the very northwesternmost corner of Indonesia. They call themselves the veranda of Mecca. Very, very strong ties to the Arab world, very strongly Muslim. At the other end of the archipelago, it's the western half of the island of New Guinea, and the people are Melanesian, black-skinned, frizzy-haired, Christian by religion, and there's everything in between. And it coming together as a single nation was more of an accident of the cupidity of Dutch merchants, really, than by grand design. So I think it's fairly amazing that it ever came together as a nation, and even more amazing that it's stuck together as what is incredibly successful as a nation. It's one of the fastest-growing economies um, of the last 10 years. You know, lately I've just been thinking so much about colonial uh, heritage and how European and American colonialism oftentimes creates a nation that really makes no sense, and it's only viable as long as it has a strong man. I'm thinking Iraq or, or Libya and so on, and if you get rid of the strong man in the name of democracy, you can have chaos and the whole thing falls apart. But you're talking about a very diverse nation that really makes no sense ethnically that Dutch colonialism created, and today it's working, and it has had a heritage of dictators holding it together, but today it's actually working in a nicer way. Talk a little bit about that. That's absolutely right. And what's interesting about it is that it's almost now gone back to a pre-colonial model. So through the centuries, the, the thing to note about Indonesia is that it runs the distance from Anchorage to Washington, D.C. or from London to Tehran in a string of 13,000 or more islands along the equator. Now, why is that important? It sits between China and India, which were always the two great powerhouses of world production. And there's the Himalaya between the two. So if you wanted to ship goods between those two, you took them between the islands that now make up Indonesia. And you were helped by that in that by the trade winds, because they blow you in one direction for half of the year and the other direction for the other half of the year. So you had almost like a conveyor belt of manufactured goods going between India and China and then onwards to, to Europe from there. And what that created was a number of different economically strong independent fiefdoms. They were sultanates, they were kingdoms, they took many different formats, principalities. They were sort of codependent because of the trade, but they were never a unity. And then came the colonists, and then, as you point out, two strong men. So Indonesia really was the vision of one man, the first president, Sukarno, who had a dream of uniting uh, all of this into a single nation. And he managed to do that very effectively. But then it was held together really by the military and a very, very strong centralized bureaucracy. And that held until the late 1990s. But there were a lot of tensions because of all the diversity. So Sukarno was the sort of George Washington of the country and Suharto was the strong arm dictator that really held it together with force. Is, is that fair to say? That's absolutely correct. And Suharto did try and stamp more of a cultural unity across the nation, but it didn't really stick. So by the time he stepped down, he'd been in power for 32 years and there was the Asian financial crisis and there were a lot of roiling little rebellions in, in different parts of the country because they felt that they were being essentially colonized by Java, the main island. So Java takes up about 7% of the land mass but holds 66%, two-thirds of the nation's population. And the other islands felt like they were being dominated too much by Java. Java, the capital, uh, Jakarta, where we had the strong arm, the Suharto, he would actually move people around. They had this resettlement program, right, Transmigrasi, and that was an attempt to make it all work, but that planted seeds of future discontent, and now they're sorting through that quite successfully? That's right. And the way they've done it is basically to go back to the pre-colonial model, which is almost separate, I mean, largely autonomous mm. fiefdoms. So they've decentralized, not to the level of the province, which there are now 34 provinces, instead of decentralizing to the level of 34 provinces, which would be like decentralizing to the states, like having a federation like the United States, mm -hmm. they decentralized to the district level, which is like the counties in the U.S., and as you can imagine, there are a lot of counties. There are now over 500. And every single one of those now has an elected head. And so you've got what's really 
a collection of local potentates, each working inside of a, a national framework, but really being able to adapt things very much to the needs of their own people. And because it's such a diverse country, that really allows for a lot of flexibility that was probably necessary in Suharto's time when he was trying to impose more of a unified model across the country. You really saw the strains beginning to develop. And now with this radical democratic decentralization, you've got people being able to express their own needs and desires more across the country and local authority to be able to meet those different needs. We're talking with Elizabeth Pisani, by the way. Her book is Indonesia, etc. And I'm so fascinated with Indonesia. So this is, I mean, I think you could send people from Iraq there to take a few lessons. You have 500 proud counties with different religions and different languages and different heritage. You've got a system that is flexible, which seems to be working to give people that wiggle room. But at the same time, it, I would imagine it's a prescription for corruption. Well, what's happened is, as part of this great decentralization, there has been a decentralization of corruption. I don't think that overall there's more of it. It's just that it's more dispersed. So in the Suharto years, the way that he kept the country together was essentially by paying off the military to maintain stability. And in that process of paying off the military to maintain stability, he gave them a monopoly over much of the state-owned resources, which was the oil and gas, which was the mining, which was the forestry. And those riches were essentially dominated by the military and a very small number of conglomerates. And they, in turn, had to basically deliver stability and economic growth across the country. In your book, you talk about corruption, in a sense, unifies Indonesia. That's right. It, it was a force in a way for keeping things together, but it was also in a way quite extractive because the corruption after people had paid their bills to keep the peace, it went into a very, very small number of pockets. And now with decentralization, corruption and patronage, and I make a distinction between those two, there's a difference between graft, taking money out of the system and sticking it in your pocket, and patronage, which is giving jobs and contracts and favors to people who support you. And I think that's a system that, mm. that Americans are quite familiar with. Mm -hmm. Patronage has been very much more decentralized. And so what you've got mm. is trickle-down corruption. It's distributive corruption. Yes, you're still not doing things absolutely by the market and absolutely as a meritocracy, right. but you are actually delivering smaller <laughs> amounts of money to many more people. I read in your book you're talking about how, for instance, the government would win the support of farmers by actually banning the importation of fruit that the farmers grow locally so the farmers would have uh, more profitable work. Would that have been an example of the decentralization where you have a county government doing that, or is that a national thing coming out of Jakarta? That's pretty much a national thing. They, mm -hmm. In the very first years of, of decentralization, they did try and do it. Some of the districts tried to keep things out of their district, and that was just too shambolic. It didn't. Indonesia's extremely porous, so that wasn't going anywhere. But I should say, you know, it's plain old protectionism, and it's something that any European listening to this will be very familiar with, mm -hmm. you know. There are many nations that, that have tried to keep their own people and their own industries happy by, by banning imports. It's not a very efficient way of doing business, but uh, it keeps the votes coming in. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about Indonesia with Elizabeth Pisani. Her book is Indonesia Etc. And her website is indonesiaetc.com. Elizabeth, speaking of the, the way the government tries to run and control the economy, it's a very poor country. About half of its people, we're talking pushing 300 million people here, living on $2 a day. It was fascinating that you wrote that you could have 80 million people living without electricity, 65 million people on Facebook. In fact, many people who are on Facebook manage their lives without electricity. What kind of insight does this give us into this jumble called Indonesia? I think it's, it's very easy to say, oh, it's a country of contradictions, it's a country of, you know, the, the urban rich and the rural poor, but it's actually much more complex than that. So you find people, it's not only that there are people living in different centuries in the same country, you're often living in different centuries in the same village. So I'll give you an example. I was in uh, Western Sumba, which is 
a part of the country that was very much neglected through the Suharto years and has very much maintained its own traditions, including its own religion, which is called Marapu, which literally in the local language means ancestors. And it's a kind of an ancestor worship. And you find it expressed in, in extraordinary ceremonies which involve ritual slaughter of animals and etc. And, and one of the things that you do once a year is you have your the whole of the clan has its future read in the entrails of a chicken and I'd been adopted into a clan. So, of course, I have my en- my future read in the entrails of a chicken. I'm glad to say that my chicken was generous to me <laughs> about uh, about my future. And there are priests chanting at midnight and it's all very hypnotic and very, very, it could have happened any time in the preceding how many centuries, except that you've got a bunch of teenagers who are recording this on their handphones. And for the next three weeks, when you walk around the villages, you'll find louts who are still on vacation, lying around in the afternoon sunshine with their handphones on next to them, replaying the chanting of their Marapu priests. Wow. It's a jumble of cultures and it's a jumble of times right in the same village. And it's a jumble with government meddling or or programs in the economy. Apparently, Indonesia is so rich with uh, its mineral resources and so on, but so poor with its general economy, they can subsidize electricity and people drive around as if uh, gasoline is, is almost free. That's true. I'm I'm glad to say that the so there was a big election in Indonesia last year and we've just the new president has recently been inaugurated and one of the things he did first of all was to get rid of some of the gasoline subsidies which were very extraordinary. But yeah, you have these programs there's a growing social welfare system. So, yes, half the population lives on less than $2 a day. And yet, no one is starving and almost no one falls through the net. And part of that is because of these government programs. So there's a program called Raskin, which is uh, rice for poor families. And it's intended to subsidize rice consumption for the 17 million poorest households. Mm. So that's an awful lot of people covered by it. The World Bank recently did a study of the program, and they found that only 25% of that rice is actually going to the poorest households. Mm. And a lot of the rest of it is leaking into the market and this and that. And when I first saw that, I was like, oh, God, more corruption. But in Mm -hmm. fact, I was talking in a little village up a river in Borneo. It's about three hours by dugout canoe from the nearest road. And the village head was doing his nut about the poor rice program because he said, I don't know what to do. You know, they come to me with all this rice. I'm supposed to give it to the poorest families. But our culture here is a collective culture. I can't give stuff to one Mm. family and not to another. Even the poor families who are supposed to be getting the rice preferentially don't want me to give it just to them. They want it shared out because that's our culture. So if I don't share it out, then my electors, because it's an elected position, my voters are unhappy. And if I do share it out, then I'm technically accused of corruption by by the government and the World Bank. So well-meaning so, top-down charity or government programs needs to mesh with the indigenous culture. I, I felt that when I was in Bali. I remember trying to get as remote as I could in Bali, and I went on a motorcycle up this huge dead end to a village that had almost no uh, connection with the modern world, it seemed. And everybody just wanted me to go to the headman. So he was almost sitting like under a canopy, like on a throne in this village. And it just really felt like he called the shots. There was this tribal notion of we've got a headman and it's all got to work together. It, it doesn't matter what's going on in the modern world. It's got to fit with our heritage. Is that still existing today in, in remote parts or all over Indonesia? Uh, yes, it is. And I think that, you know, it's very difficult to speak about Indonesia precisely because it's so culturally diverse. Bali, as you well know, is is the only uh, predominantly Hindu island. And so that is particularly pronounced in mm. Bali because you still have a very, very deeply entrenched caste system, which goes with the Hindu religion. And so that culture of the head man controlling everything is very, very much the case in Bali, but you find it throughout Indonesia and it expresses itself in in rather different ways. So sometimes it's taking care of 
the clan, the blood clan. Sometimes it's taking care of the religious clan, and sometimes it's party politics, but it's very, very hierarchical. And to come in as an outsider and to say, tut, 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 this is wrong, we should be more democratic, is, is a dangerous way to do it, because it is a democratic system, but it's a democratic system that is pyramid-shaped rather than flat. You know, the fascinating thing, Elizabeth, about reading your book is the notion that it's not a matter of great earth-shaking sights in the conventional sense. It's just a fascinating, engrossing, inviting culture that can be interesting and, and worth exploring to no end. Our guest, Elizabeth Pisani, is a journalist who now lives in London. She's devoted years getting to know and working with the people of Indonesia. She writes about her latest discoveries in her book, Indonesia Etc., Exploring the Improbable Nation. Her website includes slideshows and videos from her travels, and it's at indonesiaetc.com. Elizabeth, you mentioned Bali is the definitively Hindu part of a generally Muslim country of nearly 300 million people. In your book, you say Indonesia has the largest Muslim-majority population. What do you mean by that? Well, people very easily slip into calling it the largest Muslim nation, but it's not technically Muslim. So the founding fathers, Sukarno in particular, fought very hard for it to be a secular nation. Okay, so the majority of the people are Muslim, but it is a a, a secular democracy. Correct. You've got 400 pages of fascinating insights into Indonesia in your book, Indonesia, etc. And I could just talk forever about this country that I personally have had such a beautiful time exploring and you make me want to go back. You write, uh, Elizabeth, you write in your book that Indonesia is like one giant bad boyfriend. Let's close this discussion with uh, exactly what do you mean by that? Oh, you've never had a bad boyfriend, have you? It's someone who makes you smile and makes you... It's just generous and funny and makes you feel all warm and fuzzy inside. And you've got those sort of slightly embarrassing shared intimacies that go back years and years. And then they reinvent history and tell endless low-grade lies and turn up late for your birthday and disappoint you over and over again. And you just know it's all going to end in tears and you want to slap them upside the head and send them to bed with no supper three times a week. (laughs) And yet you know you're going to go back for more because they're good looking, they are rich, they are generous, and they are very, very good to you. And so you keep going back for more despite the frustrations. And that's sort of how I feel about Indonesia. Elizabeth Pisani, thank you so much. And congratulations on your book, Indonesia, etc. Thank you. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe through the back door in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick and Isaac Kaplan-Wilner. Thanks to our colleagues at WSHU Radio in Fairfield, Connecticut and the Radio Foundation in New York for their help this week. There's more behind the radio tab at ricksteves.com. Support for Travel with Rick Steves comes from Rosetta Stone giving you feedback on your pronunciation as you learn a new language to help your language be clear and authentic sounding to the native ear. Learn more at rosettastone.com slash ricksteves. Each year, Rick Steves tour guides take free-spirited travelers on escorted tours all over Europe, one small group at a time. This year, you can choose from three dozen exciting itineraries covering the best of Europe from Ireland to Istanbul, Paris to St. Petersburg, and practically everywhere in between. For a free catalog and Rick's Tour Experience DVD, visit the tour pages at ricksteves.com.